0: I'm Pam Drucker-Mann, and this is Tell Me What You Really Think, special Election Day episode, Get Out There and Vote, where I sit down with innovators and changemakers to talk about the role of the media in these unsettling and chaotic times we're living through. Chaotic indeed, and that doesn't even begin to describe the assault we've seen on women's rights over the past two years after decades of progress. Not only have two million women left the workforce since the pandemic— Most laid off, some to take care of their families, which we'll get into later. But we're also losing rights, literally losing rights. And that's reproductive rights, as decided by the group of nine this summer in the Dobbs decision. So if you haven't already, get out there and vote. Elections matter. And to help us navigate this and the hopeful future I know we're going to face, I have two preeminent experts in activism and fighting for women, Sam Barry and C. Nicole Mason. Sam, a friend of the pod, is the global editorial director of Glamour, which focuses on unique perspectives impacting women today, including the financial and the political, which we'll get into, and dating and stuff like that. She also oversees the pivotal Women of the Year awards, an annual celebration of Glamour's diverse female community. Also joining us is C. Nicole Mason, PhD. She was recently named one of the world's fifty greatest leaders and is currently president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. For the past two decades, she has spearheaded research on issues related to economic security, poverty, and women's issues. She coined the term She Session, which we will definitely get into today, and has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, and the Washington Post, amongst others. Sam, Nicole, thank you for joining me today. How are you?
1: Great. Thank you for having us.
0: You're in a really good mood considering all the stuff going um, on with women right now, Sam.
1: You know, you got to s- optimism and hope will get us a long way. <laughs> optimism, hope, and a bit of action, right? especially on an election day.
0: I hear you. Well, there's so much to cover. And as a woman, this particular episode is one I've been anticipating since May 2nd. In fact, on every episode I've done up until this one, all I want to do is talk about women's rights. And they're like, this isn't the one. I was like, damn, OK. But on May 2nd, when it when it leaked that the Supreme Court was likely to overturn Roe v. Wade— And let's be honest, it's been downhill ever since. I'm wondering what you two were thinking on that day. Sam, let's start with you.
1: I wasn't surprised, which is the sad state of affairs. When I started at Glamour as editor-in-chief in my first year in 2018, I wrote an editor's letter About growing up in a country, I'm from Ireland, where for decades and generations, women had no access to reproductive rights. Abortion was illegal. And I watched from my New York office as the country that I was born in was giving women back the right through repealing the Eighth Amendment. And I cried. I cried in Conde Nast and World Trade Center. And I also cried because I was worried I was living in a country that was chipping away at them. And that was the editor's letter that I wrote in 2018. I was not surprised. I was horrified by the decision, but it has been a a clear fight for for certain parts of the GOP for decades to take this right away. And as somebody that has seen firsthand in different countries what access to reproductive rights looks like, making abortion illegal doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It Mm -hmm. just makes it unsafe for people without means. And the reality is that's the place that we are now in America. So I was horrified and I think I brought my team together and we talked about not being, you know, sometimes these things can feel overwhelming, especially as a woman where you just see these attacks on your personal liberties. But I think for us at Glamour, what can we do? You know, what can you do today on election day? What can you do to change the course of history for women?
0: I mean, I think it's crazy that here we are, In 2022, still talking about other people, talking Mm. about what we can and can't do with our bodies. Nicole, as I understand it, you wrote an article actually outlining the potential effects of this decision more than a year ago when the court announced it was going to take on the case. Take me through what this was like for you to realize more than a year ago before the case was decided how this potential ruling would adversely affect women.
2: So for a very long time, we had been saying that the decision the ripping away of Roe versus Wade was imminent. And a year ago, we were doing some research to think about the impact of abortion restrictions on women, and nobody paid attention, was really paying attention to the research. And then um, Dobbs happened, and we were ready to go with the research. But it was also a moment of reckoning, because I don't think, honestly, we were really prepared the Dobbs decision, even though we knew that it was coming down the pipeline. And so there was a lot of, what should we do? What's the strategy? And even though it seemed like it was imminent, I don't think we were ultimately prepared for the decision to come down and so swiftly. But we're in this moment where women are ready and willing to rethink strategies, fight back. We saw what happened in Kansas and there's gonna be many more Kansases. And there's also gonna be opportunity, I think, for us to be more proactive, to really think about how we might codify our rights, our reproductive rights, bodily autonomy in the law, and not be on the defensive. And so I'm looking forward to that, where we can really dream about what it means for all of us to have bodily autonomy and integrity.
0: Do you think we can, I mean, and I guess maybe this is a, I don't want this to be a hopeful question, but I I think what a lot of women are talking about is like, okay, one, can we get to a place where this is codified? Like, is this you know, is this within our reach? Is this within a couple of years? Like, how long will this take? And I want to talk to you, Sam, in a minute about how you think, as a voice of young readers, like how we can organize to, you know, how people can get proactive and what they can do to help us get there. But I'm just curious, Nicole, from your perspective, what that requires, given where we are right now, from a legal perspective.
2: So there's a lot of work that we have to do. I mean, the courts are obviously a problem. The public will and attention around these issues is also a problem, I think, you know, took roll falling for, for many of us to wake up. There were protests happening across the country after Dobbs and a lot of tears. But I wondered, why wasn't there more people in the streets after Dobbs had fallen? And so I think we have a lot of work to do in building the public and political will behind this. I think we have work to do at the courts. Do you I think,
0: think that was shock? That's such a good point. Like, why weren't there more people in the street?
2: I think it was a little bit of shock. I was just a disappointed is probably not the right word. Uh, I just thought, if this isn't the moment where I've been working on these issues for 20 years, and there's been a lot of apathy to these issues, even when I'm teaching young people. And I say, well, you know, they didn't think role was an issue, but they thought it was settled. And I said, well, you can thank feminists for that. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, it wasn't settled. Um, but I, I still <laughs> wondered, where was the uprising?
0: Sam, what are your thoughts on that? Well,
1: Nicole talked about people, and I think that's an important thing to talk about. It can't be just women having these conversations. I think behind every abortion, behind every pregnancy, there is a man, right? And let's be just very frank about that. I think I was, as the editor-in-chief of Glamour, looking at and waiting for the men to react. And it was slow and it was small. Were they scared? Like, why aren't they reacting? You know, we actually had an amazing piece from Sophia Bush and her husband writing about a previous abortion that he had. GQ just did a piece on men that have had abortions. And I think that's an important part of the conversation because it should not be left up to women to fight for women's rights, right? Mm -hmm. Like, women's rights are human rights. And the fact that I feel like we're hearing and we're depending on the women in this world to really Mm -hmm. fight the fight of, like, the GOP and the people that are trying to take this away from women and these decisions, um, men and young men in particular, should be part of this conversation and they should be helping drive it. And I don't think I'm seeing enough of that. I, I don't know if you you guys feel the same. I just feel like it feels like it's in a little bit of a vacuum. And I think some of it is female health is often a taboo topic, right? I don't know if you saw recently with the New York Times did a piece on the clitoris and why it is one of the most underrepresented parts of the, you know, that it's studied by in medicine, it's because it's a female body part. I, I say that because, again, hmm. pregnancy. And abortions, these are all female medical institutions, and I feel like they're either ignored or they're brushed under the carpet or they're used as political father. and I think that's what we're going into in the u s at the moment. I
0: think that's such an interesting point because even the idea that we call it like women's rights, mm. it's like, you know, civil rights, it's people's rights. you know, one could say, well, men aren't as impacted by this as women are, but there's so many implications there's healthcare implications that you just referenced, there's financial implications, which I think is so insane. The complete disregard for our ability to make, you know, our own decisions about our bodies should be a collective concern Mm -hmm. and a collective fight. And it's interesting because going back to what Nicole was talking about, like this kind of inaction, that's kind of what it felt like. I mean, as a woman myself, when this came down, I think everyone was waiting for somebody else to Mm kind of like rise up. And I remember, you know, talking to you at that time. It's like, oh, my God, like, who are the Gloria Steinem's of our time? You know, maybe the irony is we had made so much progress. You know, there wasn't as much activism happening on behalf of women Mm -hmm. in this regard. And so maybe there wasn't this kind of organization happening Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, like, what you've been hearing, Sam, from, like, your readers of, of Glamour, like, what have the women of the world been saying about this?
1: It's interesting because we did have that conversation after this. And I remember having, like, who are the glorious dynams of this next generation? Who are the Gen Zs that are going out and fighting the fight? And I don't think we've truly identified them. I'm looking for them at Glamour. So yeah. if you know somebody, if you have, we, we've been looking at organizations. One thing that we did do this year, and one of the women that we honored as a woman of the year this year is Dr. Gomparts, who is based in Amsterdam and is is the, one of the biggest abortion providers in the US through her organisation Aid Access. She has been fighting globally for access to abortion for many years in boats off Poland and Ireland and trying to make sure that women do get access to safe abortion pills in particular. And it's interesting to talk to her. And if you read her profile by Maddie Khan on Glamour, you can see that like I think there was... She was always prepared to fight. You know, Mm -hmm. she did her first abortion in Guinea when she was a medical student and watched in a country where it was illegal and very dangerous to have an abortion. She helped. And that was the first time she ever did an abortion. And for her to put her focus all the way from Amsterdam into providing abortion pills for women in states where it is now illegal after the Dobbs verdict is so interesting because we are looking to like the global heroes in the, the fight for reproductive health as well.
0: The reality is, I think, whether people were in shock when it Mm -hmm. happened back in May or when it was leaked back in May— I think the shock is starting to wear off and ultimately
1: it is election day. So it'll be really interesting to see how people vote. What's interesting, though, even in the last couple of weeks, you've seen that in September, it was like front of like number one agenda for some swing voters, in particular women going to the polls. Even in the last couple of weeks, you've seen it drop off the agenda. You've seen other things take precedent. People are, you know, those swing voters are going to the polls with the economy front of mind, right. with inflation front of mind. And you're seeing in the data that I have looked at that it has become, even in this three-month period, less of a pressing issue for voters. Are we
0: not talking about it enough? Nicole, What are you? what is your opinion? I mean, why was it so much louder just even three weeks ago? And now here we are on election day, and ultimately, you know, people are more interested in what's happening with inflation than what is happening with women's
2: rights. I have two theories about this. Well, the first is that Biden just uh, last week uh, before the election held a rally with women leaders to say, don't forget, (laughs) Roe is still on the ballot and we have a lot of work to do. Uh, And it was also to remind us because it has fallen out of public consciousness in a real way. The second thing is they want us to forget. They want to shape the conversation and make it about inflation and the economy. But I want to draw the direct connection to reproductive health and rights and the economy. That's right. Uh, those those two things are are linked. So reproductive health is an economic issue. And you know, I think the other side wants us to forget what they did <laughs> to women just a short few months ago. But I hope that it's the case today at the polls that we haven't forgotten.
0: I, I I hope so too, because um you know it's so interesting as you connect the financial implications to what we're voting for, right? Research has shown that children born to mothers unable to obtain an abortion are more likely to live below the federal poverty level versus future children of women who are able to even obtain an abortion. I guess this concept is lost on at least one of the parties right now who is using inflation and using, you know, what's happening um, economically in the U.S. as a reason to not care about women's rights. But I couldn't agree with you more. It's clear that we're all incredibly passionate about restoring our rights, but both are you in careers that speak to and fight for women's rights every single day. Nicole, is this what you always aspired towards? What led you to this career did you always know you would be trying to level the playing field for women? You probably didn't know that you were going to have to work so hard right in this moment, but curious kind of how you got here.
2: So, that's a really good question. So, I didn't. I in college, I started volunteering at a shelter for abused women in Washington D.C. Before that, I didn't really have any language for what was happening or sexism or, you know, intersectionality. I just didn't I didn't. And when I went through the training, a a light bulb went off. I said, oh my God, you know, this is the work that I want to do. And so I got to it and I attended Howard University and I started the first feminist organization on its campus. Wow. And I've just been doing this work ever since. So it's been like over two decades now and it's been really great and fulfilling, but also really very hard work, especially in times and moments like this where it feels like progress is slipping.
0: Are you able to separate the personal from the professional, especially in a moment like this, do they fuel each other, I guess?
2: For me, this is very personal. So (laughs) the knocking down um, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade is very personal. I I have a now 13 year old daughter and I walked into her bedroom when the decision came down, like she was still sleeping, I think, or so, you know, and I, I, when it was coming and I just burst in her door, I was like, you know, Roe is gone. (laughs) She was like, what are you talking about? I was like, Roe is gone. And do you know what that means? And so, and she was like, oh my God, this woman is crazy. (laughs) But, but what I did, what it felt like was that like, you know, she was going to be left with less rights or fewer rights than I than I had. Um, And then when I couple that with other things like the pay gap and some of the other things that, you know, seem in terms of pace, seem glacial, I just wonder about her and her future.
0: You know, Sam, you're speaking to basically Nicole's daughter and that future, right? I'm curious, as the editor of one of the most important women's brands in the world, How does this change the future of Glamour and how you're kind of what platform you're providing for
1: women's futures Mm -hmm. in general? I think it's emboldened us as a team. Mm. And I think, you know, previous to Glamour and Condé Nast, I'd always worked in news, right? General news, breaking news. I ran social media at CNN. I was a TV producer for BBC World News. But and i worked Sam in gets ra- around I get around reporter. right I, I worked in radio in ireland but i i always found i think you know I, I was always on the big breaking news stories but the ones i got probably the most excited and passionate about were the ones that were through the lens of women mm-hmm. and so for me in this job now to be able to Concentrate all of my efforts, all of our storytelling into that and feel emboldened because I think we look at the history of glamour, which has been around since 1939 and has done amazing things in the fight for women. I mean, when I when we dig into the archives and we see the coverage that we had for original Roe v. Wade, it it is very inspiring for the team. And I think this year there's been a couple of things like our coverage of Roe v. Wade, Women of the Year being another one, and then our fight for paid leave um, in America that makes us feel like we're having impact. Because I think as storytellers, as media companies, sometimes you can feel a little bit like, am I just shouting into the abyss with this great storytelling? But when you have a project or you have a mission, and for us it is the fight for women – and it feels like you're making some impact, it, it is helpful. We went to DC, we went to the White House, and we talked to the Vice President, Kamala Harris, and she, she talked, it was very interesting with the team, about about election day, about today, and that who people vote for could have a difference on women's lives for the next 20 years. Who you put in office in these midterms, in these general elections. Like, look at what has happened with Roe v. Wade. If you don't think elections are important, the people that they put in, In office, the people that led to the Supreme Court makeup that we have, they have impacted women's reproductive rights for probably generations to come, even as we try to fight that fight. So I think sometimes there is an apathy and like, oh, what difference can I make? This is the difference. The difference of who you vote for, who you put in office, why you vote for somebody and what you're voting for can have generational impact.
0: I think that we really do. I mean, listen, this seems like a Captain Obvious statement about, you know, getting organized around voting. Mm -hmm. And I think every individual always kind of sees that as, I don't know, like boiling the ocean a little bit. It's Mm -hmm. like, I'm only one vote. Like, how's that going to matter? And how can like my one vote connect to like a groundswell of change? Nicole, I'm curious what you've seen in terms of other ways that women have been able to make progress. I see what's going on right now in Iran and how women are standing up for their rights in a totally different way because democracy there, let's just be honest, for women doesn't exist. Um, I'll be honest, in those moments, I actually feel lucky to be in the U.S. where we have more freedoms and protections. But it does make me think also of, number one, how quickly we can lose our freedoms, but just how important brave you have to be to organize how important it is to educate and to be able to help the world understand what's even going on but i guess my question is like connected to voting but besides voting like nicole what have you seen or how else can can women make a difference in this moment that I, it seems like it's all happening kind of at the same time
2: well i think that we all have a role to play so obviously hands down we should be all voting today and when i think about the the women in iran one of the things an activist said, she said, this is about human rights. Yeah. And so I think if we can all start thinking about the work that we do in our own personal lives and the work we do to make progress, even in small ways, as advancing human rights or you know making progress, I think that collectively leads to like big change. This week, I'm here in um, Austria with global women leaders from around the world. And I tell you something, it's really been inspiring to me, because I do my work. Sometimes I feel like I'm just, you know, hitting a wall. Sometimes, and then what I realize is that while I'm here in the U.S. doing my work here, there are women in Chile and um, Argentina doing their good work there. And to and together we are making change and progress. And you know, I started off in direct service and doing community organizing. Today I'm a researcher leading a think tank. So your career, your arc in terms of thinking about how you make change can change and does change over time.
0: Sam, I know you've also covered the situation in Iran. Can you give our listeners, who may not be as aware, a brief on the situation there and the lessons that maybe we can take away from it?
1: I think it's very interesting to see what's happening in Iran, and I think there's a lot of Iranian-American community here that are really asking the media and others to share the story. So I think sometimes it can feel so far away. I mean, the story is... It's about choice and, and it starts with a young woman who was arrested for not wearing her hijab correctly or at least by the morality police was thought not to. She was reportedly beat in prison and died in the detention centre and died a couple of days later. And what has led is to this this female-led revolution in Iran that the likes of which has never happened. This is a really interesting turn in this, in, in this country and you see these women, these really brave women taking to the streets and taking off their hijabs. They're surrounded by their male allies. They're cutting their hair publicly. It is a real defiant and viscerally interesting show of defiance by the women in Iran. It is a country where it is the Internet has been cut off. Getting the information out is sometimes difficult. And I think there's this onus on all of us, including Glamour. And we have a, a, a had a moment at Women of the Year where we, we acknowledge our sisters in Iran and the fight that they have. And I think There's also lots of other fights. The cornerstone of feminism is choice. And I think some people were like, why are we fighting for women to be able to take off their hijab in Iran, but we're fighting for them to be allowed to wear it in Paris? And I think ultimately it's about choice. It's about women's choice and being able to, over their body, over the autonomy of what they wear, making that choice. And I think sometimes people confuse, why are you going for this in this country and and this other? And ultimately it's about choice and women feeling that they have that choice. I, I feel the weight of responsibility of being at the head of Glamour and knowing that we have this platform and having to make making sure we make times for, yes, the fight for American women, but the fight for women in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Paris and all of these places. And as you said earlier in the podcast, my purview is not only over the US, but Mexico and we look at the global editions of Glamour and we're constantly talking to each other about how do we share these stories about what's happening in Germany and Spain and the UK. And I think that's the exciting thing about Glamour, and we're sharing a lot of stories across the editions as well.
0: Well, one thing that I'm super proud of that, you know, obviously you've been leading and that Glamour stands for is, again, has been about empowering women and about recognizing women that are doing amazing things. Every time I've gone to to Women of the Year, I sit there and the first thing that I'm thinking is bravery, you know, risk-taking, so much conviction, organization, selfless. These are all things that come to mind. And I think Glamour does an amazing job of of not only, like, recognize these women doing amazing things, but building a platform for these women to tell their stories. And, you know, I always walk out of there feeling horrible about myself. I know. Because I'm if, like, what am I doing? If, you don't, if
1: you don't walk out of Glim Women of the Year thinking, I'm not doing enough, we, we haven't done our job. Yeah,
0: that's it's 100% how I'm always feeling. But um, one question I have for you that maybe you took away from this year's Women of the Year is, did you feel a different level of responsibility this year versus other years
1: to – honor and celebrate women. I went into this year and I've repeated it a lot to my team as we planned for Women of the Year and we looked at our coverage this year and I I said it was about the fight and the fun this year and I, there's a lot to fight for don't mm-hmm. get me wrong we, we're, we've we talked about a lot of it here right there is a there is a fight that we cannot give up but there's also the flip side of that like where people come to glamour and us and like you've got to have the fun right? Yeah, let's like talk the, about that the music the you know the fun part of it the storytelling the joy you know some of our most popular content this year has been around sex and relationships because people want as much as they're fighting they also you know, they want some escapism and the joy of life and yeah. I think they often look to glamour for both right like where should I be fighting? What should I be caring about in the midterms? But also, like, what should I binge watch? What is going to make me – like, what am I going to enjoy? And I think, for me, it was with the team as we planned Women of the Year is how do we bring those two things together that are not totally opposed, but they're just – this is how we live our life. Where you can fight for stuff and have fun along the Well, you don't want to, like,
0: spend all – I mean, no, you could live under a rock. Totally. Like, just talking <laughs> about all the bad stuff. Obviously, like, binge watching and, like, the best dating app mm. to go on and all those things are just – like that's how that's like drinking water. Like you mm-hmm. have to have it. Um, what What would you say is for you as you think about, um, I don't know, the hot t- like in terms of the fun right yeah. now, like what's uh, what's blowing up? From a trend perspective with glamour. Cuffing season.
1: We're in cuffing season. I don't know if you know that term. No, terminology. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a dating is. season. It's like tryouts or something. I'm not going to be good I at the like American I feel like I've been in a relationship analogy. for too long for sure. <laughs> so it it, we're, it, we're in deep yeah. in cuffing season. So <laughs> Did you say coughing? Like, cuffing. Cuffing. <coughs> like it's cuffing season. Have what you it? never heard that? I don't even know what that means. Um, <laughs> Nicole is nodding. She knows what I'm talking about. Nicole, you know this? Um it's like a dating it's like it's getting cold you might have been like all my producers are nodding so yeah. basically I'm the only person that's ever so heard so cuffing season dating is a big topic for us at Glamour it's very enjoyable we did a lot um, we did the summer of sex and, and and we did a lot about like the soft launch on Instagram of like one's you know partner and um, all of that <laughs> cuffing season which we're in at the moment which means that you should be getting into like the playoffs now like if you're dating a couple of people right. you gotta get for Thanksgiving Christmas you gotta get the, you gotta get down to like <laughs> oh right this is the number one spot. Oh, because uh,
0: summer's like about being single, right? Yeah, because yeah. you don't want to down. Right, right. But fall is about getting like connected so that like by Thanksgiving you have someone to invite.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe not to like the family dinner, but like someone maybe for like with. the day after. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Coven season, we're in the middle of that and our audience are interested in, in do you have talking any, about that.
0: Do you have any advice coming from Glamour as to how to like <laughs> do the season right?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I think I need it personally. No. Um, <laughs> I'm looking to the I Glamour did. content to see. Um, I thought you'd figured that out. Yeah, no. Um, so I think, look, I think, again, about the joy of it. So, you know, it, don't take it so, so seriously. But like, you know, yeah, cuffing, we're in coughing no. season. Nicole knows what I'm talking about. I missed about.
0: it all. I missed all. I, I've been in a relation for 17 years. So I missed online dating. I, I clearly missed this whole season um, altogether. So I, I feel like I, I, definitely, uh, I definitely need to catch up on that. Well, let me ask you this question. When we're not trying to date, mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to get, We're trying to work, Mm -hmm. right? The women in the workforce is like a real thing. And it is a pressing issue, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we've obviously made a lot of progress. But even with that, the stats are still kind of astounding against women in the workforce. Nicole, I think you gave a speech this summer where you stated that 2 million women have been lost from the workforce since the start of the pandemic, which is just insane. Like women were gaining on men with equal pay. But as the pandemic hit, this has actually worsened. I was really depressed to learn that, by the way. And with the impending now recession, I have concerns about what's going to happen next. So one of the primary challenges women face is, of course, deciding to raise a family and have a career. Um, I'm someone who chose to do both at the same time. I have way too many children. I have three. So why why is this? Why did we lose so many women
2: well, during the pandemic, we women we lost a lot of women because they were employed in the hardest hit sectors. And we never recovered many of those jobs that were lost, especially in retail and service industry, and particularly in care. And so when you layer... Those job losses on with lack of paid sick and family medical leave and also the pay gap, it's pretty disastrous for many women, especially younger women who are during the pandemic, if you're just coming out of college or just starting your career, it was a setback. And so you were on the sidelines or having to take a job that wasn't in your field. And so now as you reenter, we still are not, women are still are not pre-pandemic levels.
0: And Sam, you, uh, I know you recently published a piece in Glamour, That really kind of enraged me and saddened me all at the same time. And it stated that there are over 3 million births every year in the US, but at the same time, this country is only one of six that does not offer paid leave. So we were just talking about that. You called on Glamour readers to change this, which I think is kind of amazing. Can you talk about what made you publish that article and what was the reader and I don't know, political response to that.
1: Well, our executive editor, Natasha Perma, was actually a real driver for this. And she's a mom of two and, and had a difficult second birth. And I think she'd come to the US and, and been a little horrified by the lack of, of, of paid um, family leave. And, it, you know, for out of those six countries in the world, there's six countries in the world that do not have paid family leave. America's the only one the rich, one, the richest one. And the fa- it's, again, embarrassing. And the reality is we needed to do this in a way that, you know, you can talk in abstract and you can talk about the attempts in, in to put it into bills that have failed over and over again. But we showed it through the story of we followed eight women in the first 28 days post-labor. Uh, and we showed the real realities of what that looks like, including some of those women went back to work after six days, which is not, it can be normal for I think a quarter of women go back to work within two weeks in America because they do not have paid leave like These are women that have had C-sections, that have had medical complications. The fact that we do not service, we talk about the family in in American politics a lot. This is, you know, one of the reasons why Dobbs got through, or at least, you know, the GOP talk about themselves being the priority of family. But we're neglecting the family at its very uh, inception of birth, right? We're not... Supporting those women. And we're not asking for the world. We're asking for four weeks of federal paid leave for American it's so families. It's so crazy to me. But
0: like, so now like the, the, the you know, they want to tell us what to do with our bodies that we mm. must have this child, but then they're not going to give us. There's a hypocrisy in it. The, the hypocrisy is kind of insane. Why don't we have paid leave? <laughs>
1: You know, we talked to Representative Gillibrand. We don't have it because it's old white men that are making the decisions for at that much of a level in terms of politicians. And again, we bring it back to Election Day. But when you have lots of men in their 60s whose wives maybe stayed at home post birth and it wasn't a two person household family of working, they don't necessarily have a personal insight to the need for federally mandated paid leave in America. And I think that is why, again, coming back to the election, why it's important to elect people that understand the struggles of everyday Americans, their families, what's happening, why we need more women in politics. We talked to Melinda Gates, and again, she said the same. The fact that we don't have these female-centric policies, including like paid family leave, is because we don't have as much women in politics as we should, especially at that really decision-making level that can get a bill passed and are in Senate and all of that. So I think that it sounds basic, but that's the reason why we don't.
0: I mean, it's kind of insane. Mothers engage in more than 300 hours of paid work per year than they did 40 years ago. what's your opinion as to how we can combat this together? Because I'm sitting here listening to it. It's insane that we don't have paid leave. I know so many people that are probably about to have children that are probably freaking out about the fact that this is like their reality as well. What can we do to try to move this forward?
2: So I think we need to have the conversations earlier. So i when I was a young woman living in New York City, I did not think about childcare. I didn't think about paid sick leave or some of the other family policies um, when I was in my 20s or even early 30s. And when I became a mom, I had sticker shock. I didn't know how I was going to afford care in New York City. And I didn't realize that I didn't have maternity leave or paid sick leave. And as a result, I felt like I needed to come back to work two days after giving birth. So I think starting those conversations early and making it a conversation that's interesting, provocative, and women, young women, um, or women of all ages can see themselves in and having and fighting for. I think that's really important because, and now I'm off-wrapping. My kids are like 13, so I, I'm not, <laughs> thank, thank Olivia, they kind of watch themselves. But like, I'm still so fired up about it because I knew what it was like for me. Yeah. Uh, And the struggle it was.
0: Well, and I think you don't really think about it until like you don't think about fertility until you're actually trying to have kids. You probably don't even think about whether there's Paid leave until you're about to have a baby, right? And so I think, you know, maybe part of the way that we need to think about organizing is connecting those conversations earlier, right? So it's like when you're starting to think about fertility, or listen, I mean many women in their 20s are freezing their eggs now, early 30s, they're freezing their eggs now. Maybe that's the maybe that's the moment we need to start having those conversations about, you know, what's the broader view? You're thinking about freezing your eggs. Okay, you should also be thinking about how we need to continue to organize around issues like this that are going to have massive impacts on you because that same woman that's freezing her eggs is probably doing that because she's very focused on her career, which she absolutely should be. I mean, she's probably also focused on cuffing season or whatever as well. <laughs> um but but it's a real thing. And you know what? I again, like I remember that pressure. I remember that, like the day that I got pregnant with my second child was the day that I found out that I was becoming the publisher of Bon Appetit. And I remember just thinking like, oh, that's going to be a fun conversation, right? Because I was actually, like, afraid that I was going to lose my job, right? And as the gay woman that I am, I couldn't even pretend it was a mistake. I had to be like, yes, I planned this. And yes, thank you for that big promotion. Nicole, I just wanted to ask you really quickly. You know, I know you've said in the past that you do have great hope for our future collectively as it pertains to employment and equal productive rights. Where can we find hope to move forward?
2: I think this moment is really urgent. I want us to figure out how to accelerate Progress and innovate and really think about new ways of solving old problems. Um, That's, uh, you know, I'm really excited about that. And you said at the top of the podcast, like, where's Gloria Steinem? And I was like, I think we all, you know, young women, we all can be Gloria Steinem, Angela Davis in our own lives, in our own way, and not be waiting for someone to tell us what to do, but to just get out there and do it like, you know, many of the brave women we've talked about on the podcast today. So I'm really hopeful that I know I am raising a badass um, (laughs) young person, (laughs) you know, and young man. I have the twins. Um, They're a little mischievous, but um, (laughs) that's... Aren't (laughs) they though? (laughs) Um, Well, I've been saying I have like 10 more years at this in this work in this way. But I'm so happy that when I look out, I see like young women who are engaged, thoughtful, enjoy, but also impassioned by injustices and what's happening. And so I'm really excited for them.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm really hopeful for our youth. Like I see that in my boys, like there's so much more. I'm sorry, this is an overused word, but like so much more woke than I ever was. Like they're so interested in like who we're voting for. They're so interested in what's going on in the world, and they're so leaned in, and they're so, like, impassioned by it. And, and they're boys, and they just, like, they they care. I was too busy, like, I, I don't know what I was doing at that age, but, like, literally, like, I was not as leaned in as they are. All right, listen, we have this thing that we do at the end of my podcast. Uh, there, there's some rapid-fire questions, all right? So the podcast is called Tell Me What You Really Think. Mm-hmm. So it's just a quick question and a quick answer. So like, you know, if you spend too much time thinking about the answer, then you're not doing it right. Right. So Sam, I'm going to start with you because we work together. I love a rapid fire. um, All right. Given you're just coming off of Women of the Year, this is probably top of mind for you anyway. Uh, We're talking about inspiring women. Uh, Greta or Gloria? Oh, Greta. Greta. Why? Just again, next generation. All right. I don't don't hate that. Um, Nicole, what keeps you up at night?
2: My kids, actually.
0: (laughs) Because they're not going to bed. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Sorry to be honest, Um, because I, you know, at 13, they know what they know, like all the values and stuff. So I like, like have to move out of the way and I'm excited about who they're becoming.
0: Sam, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Coffee. Coffee. Do you put anything in your coffee? No,
1: I'm a morning person. <laughs> I love the mornings. Mm-hmm. I so, love it. I'm, I'm literally like nothing gets me
0: out of bed in the morning. Um, Nicole, what is the best compliment you've ever received?
2: You have nice hair. <gasps> I love that. <laughs>
0: That's great. (laughs) Sam, uh, this is a good one for you. CNN or MSNBC?
1: I'm going to say CNN because I work there and I still have an affinity, but yeah, CNN. Okay, I like
0: that. Um, Nicole, if you could give 12-year-old you one piece of advice, what would it be?
2: Just keep going. Keep going.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. This is election day. This is a question for both of you. Sam, will the Dems take the Senate? Yes or no?
1: Oh, Oh God, I want to be hopeful, but I'm not sure. I I, I like, oh, God. I don't want to go into bookies and put money on what I want my answer to be, basically. No, I I, I, I worry it's going to be a no, but I hope it's a yes.
2: I think it's a no, but I hope it's a yes. But even if it's a no, Mm. even if we lose, it's not over. So people don't despair. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, last one. This is really serious, Sam hinge or, or, um, um, bump. Bumble?
1: Bumble. I don't know. I have to get back on them. Um, I <laughs>
0: see. I didn't even. I couldn't even come no, up with another setup,
1: one. Setup. Setups. Setups. <laughs> I'm here for the due diligence of a setup.
0: Wait, but is there a? what? What is the <laughs> dating app that? What? would I have even said. Hinge. Or- there's Bumble. What's the and other one? Hinge.
1: Raya is the one that. Raya.
0: Like, yeah. There's.
1: <laughs> hey Raya. I don't know. No.
0: What's the one where you swipe left?
1: There. A no, Tinder. we we're, we're, uh, okay, we're over that now. Yeah. No. Okay. That's, that's for a different type of relationship.
0: All right. Well, we'll come back to that on the next time we're breaking <laughs> down what's going on with women. Um. Sam and Nicole, you guys are both pros. Uh, Hopefully you're like running out of here to go vote. Um, And I just want to say thank you for helping us talk about a really serious topic right now, but also to think about this amazing future that we have as women and men need to come together um, and help us continue to move some progress forward. So thank you for joining me. Tell Me What You Really Think is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. I'm Pam Druckerman. Come hang with us next week.